This is Danny Rabin from Marbin, and you're listening to EE Times on air. This is your EE Times weekly briefing. Today is Friday, May 3rd, and among our top stories this week, a one-on-one interview with Hassan El-Khori, CEO of Cypress Semiconductors. We'll review the intelligence we picked up at the recent 5G Brooklyn Summit on the question, if 5G is enough, do we need 6G? And we'll explain why Taiwanese companies who moved manufacturing in China decades ago are now coming back to Taiwan. Junko Yoshida, EE Times chief international correspondent, tells us the reason might not be what you're thinking. This exodus is less about Trump, but more about Xi Jinping. Later on, we're joined by Judith Chen, chief editor responsible for EE Times and EDN in Taiwan and Asia. Judith outlines how and why a startup movement appears to be blossoming in Taiwan. All that to come, but first, here's Dylan McGrath, EE Times executive editor, who recently sat down with Cypress Semiconductor's CEO. Dylan asked Hussan not only about his ascent to CEO, but also about his childhood in Lebanon. Dylan shares his takeaway. Here's that story. This week, I had the opportunity to have a fantastic interview with Hussan El Khori, the CEO of Cypress Semiconductor. And this is the first in a series of CEO profile interviews that I plan to do over the next several months. I wanted to start with Hussan because I am fascinated with the situation that he came into when he took over as the CEO of Cypress Semiconductor a little more than two years ago. Hussan, at the time age uh, 36, was taking over for TJ Rogers, a Silicon Valley legend who founded Cypress and had been running it basically almost as long as Hussan had been alive. One of the things that struck me was that to Hussan, he wasn't taking over for this legendary persona, this man he'd read and heard about. He was basically taking over the company from his mentor, one of his mentors, a man who had taught him a great deal about running a company and running a division and being in electronics. And having not grown up in the Silicon Valley, He wasn't burdened by the stigma of the legendary T.J. Rogers that we read about and hear about. He just knew the man that he was taken over for. And in that respect, it was not as daunting a task as one might think. And that's not to say that he didn't consider it a challenge, but um, he's a very confident guy. He felt like he could do the job and knew what needed to be done and So far, during his tenure, it would appear that he was right about that. Cypress has done very well under Hussan. And the second uh, really fascinating part of the interview was when I asked him about what drew him to engineering in the first place. He fell in love with electronics at age 10. By age 10, he had gotten a toy car, remote control car. And as far as he was concerned, that was absolutely magic. All he wanted to do was take it apart and see what was inside. And when I asked him if he was able to put it back together again, he said that was never his intention. He never tried to do that. He took it apart, examined what was inside, and then he used uh, the components to actually create a remote-controlled flashlight. He grew up in war-torn Lebanon, and his goal was to create a remote-controlled flashlight so that it could be turned on for his father when he came up the stairs getting home from work. I'm very proud of the profile, as it turned out. I hope that 
you'll be able to read the full profile on eetimes.com and to keep tuning in for more CEO profiles in the months and weeks ahead. Dylan McGrath, EE Times. Martin Rowe, Senior Technical Editor of EDN and EE Times, recently attended the 5G Brooklyn Summit. This event is sponsored by Nokia and organized by NYU Wireless, an academic research center focused on 5G millimeter wave wireless research. The 5G Brooklyn Summit attracts leaders in academia and industry, and Martin listened in on the chatter among attendees and speakers about 5G and maybe the need for 6G. With 5G now heading to deployment and the promises of 1 gigabit per second data rates, 1 millisecond latency, and so on, is that enough? While it will, 5G, lead to what was being called the tactile internet, meaning it will be able to control machines, perhaps do remote medicine, we're already hearing it won't be enough. It's just a start. Professor Gerhard Fettweiss of the Technical University of Dresden recently visited Disney Studios and they said one gigabit per second, not nearly enough for what they want to do with augmented reality and virtual reality. They need one terabit per second data rates. That's a thousand times more. Research that could lead to 6G has begun. To get there, we're going to need terahertz signals, terabit per second. Professor Ted Rappaport of the NYU Wireless has his students starting to research at frequencies of 140 gigahertz, and they've actually built a channel sounder to start trying to characterize what happens with signals at those frequencies. Now, as it turns out, once you get about above 100 gigahertz, their measurements have shown signal loss in air actually flattens out as you go up in frequency above 100 gigahertz. That's contrary to what everything that engineers have learned. As you keep going up in frequency, the channel losses continue to increase. Not so. We actually get something for nothing, at least in terms of channel loss. While 140 gigahertz could end up being incorporated into later versions of 5G, it does start us down the road towards 6G. Rappaport also explained that at such terabit rates, you now start to approach the data processing ability of the human brain, perhaps 5%, but again, it's a start. If you take that and combine it with artificial intelligence and machine learning, we could, over time, have machines designing machines. Hopefully, that won't result in engineers losing their job. All of this sounds good, but there is a price to pay, even if it's not channel loss, and that is power consumption. According to Fettweiss, ADCs are a real problem. Converting analog signals to digital at one terabit per second would result in an ADC that would consume 100 watts. That's not going to work in a cell phone. We're going to have to do a lot of work to bring power consumption down. Fettweiss says such techniques as zero-crossing modulation could produce 10 times to 15 times higher efficiency than we get today. That combined, of course, with optics to send data between chips and even using wireless as backplanes in data centers. All of that could result in a 10x to 15x improvement in power consumption. What we really need is more like 100x. 
but it's a start. All this computing power would result in consuming all of the electricity produced in the world today, and obviously that won't work. 6G is a long way off, maybe 15 years, but we will see it. See you in 2035. This is Martin Rowe signing off from the Brooklyn 5G Summit. While she was in Taipei, Junko scored her second annual exclusive interview with Taiwan's Minister of Science and Technology. She sees two big trends emerging in the region. The first, a homecoming wave of Taiwanese companies, and the second, Taipei's effort to bring engineering talent back from abroad. Junko's analysis dissects her conversations with Minister Chen and several industry executives in Taiwan. Here's Junko. Sometimes... The big picture of mainland China is clearer, seen through Taiwan's smaller lens. A case in point emerged during my recent visit to Taipei. Taiwanese tech companies who moved production to China decades ago are returning. In the past four months alone, 40 companies announced their homecoming. They've pledged to invest 6.47 billion U.S. dollars in Taiwan. The movement hardly amounts to an exodus, but it's a huge deal for an embattled island. I'm fascinated with the story for two reasons. First, this story offers unprecedented insight into the mainland. Second, the homecoming movement coincides with massive efforts by the Taiwanese government to bring back to Taiwan, the homegrown talent now living overseas. It's commonly believed that the U.S.-China trade conflict featuring punitive U.S. tariffs on China-made goods has triggered a bailout of Taiwanese companies from the mainland. But look closely, local executives tell us that the tariff issue provides a handy cover story for companies already poised to leave. Of course, 25% tariffs hurt. But more painful is the deteriorating business environment in China. My Taiwanese sources cite China's rising labor costs, the burden of uh, rapidly increasing social welfare outlays, and environmental taxes. All of these factors are making the mainland less appealing for Taiwanese companies. They also worry about China's political and social climate, which has turned more secretive and opaque in recent months. Recently enacted policies making Xi Jinping president for life are making foreign companies understandably nervous. Moreover, this phenomenon of Taiwanese companies returning home is happening at the same time when the Taiwan government is campaigning to recruit talent, professors, PhDs, and even startups born outside Taiwan. During our interview, Lianji Chen, Taiwan's Minister of Science and Technology, explained that talent search is important because Taiwan needs a new model. In a remarkable effort 30 years ago, Taiwan turned itself into the world's headquarters of the chip foundry business. This happened because Taiwan lured its best and brightest back home, including Morris Chen from the United States. 
But that was in 1980s. The rise of TSMC and UMC is old news. We need a new model, Minister Chen told us. The new model requires bright, young minds, new technology, new business ideas, and a lot of startups, he explained. Taiwan's technology leaders believe they have the juice to pull this off. Unlike its formidable neighbor, Taiwan is a small, nimble economy, but with four advantages. First, Taiwan sits next door to a giant market in China. Second is a comprehensive supply chain. Third, Taiwan's hardware engineering resources have deep roots in information and communication technology. Finally, Taiwan's democratic environment fosters freedom in research, idea creation, and business practices. I did have one concern, though. Taiwan is a hardware haven with strengths in chip production, hardware design, PC modules, and mobile handsets. But software? Not so much. Can startups thrive in Taiwan? That was my question. Minister Chen, of course, said absolutely. In the fourth industrial revolution, where intelligent infrastructure is needed, sensing is the key. Sensors are hardware. Here's how Minister Chen foresees Taiwan's startup renaissance. Yeah, because uh, we're talking about the intelligent uh, era or intelligent application, the first step is uh, sensing the data from the environment. Sensing becomes the hardware issue, right? And the sensing data need to collect and make decision with the software. So it's uh, for the intelligent product, most of them is uh, hardware and software integration. So hardware is important, but need to come up with the software. I think uh, this is very good that Taiwan can uh, try to uh, move our hardware value to become the hardware software integration value. This is Junko Yoshida reporting from Taipei. After her interviews with local executives and bureaucrats, Junko sat down with Judith Chen in the EE Times Taiwan News Bureau. She asked Judith if Taiwan's startup movement is real, and if so, why it matters. Judith, you and I have been visiting uh, universities as well as ministry to figure out what's going on in Taiwan as far as startup scene is concerned. It seems to me that Taiwan government is suddenly pushing the startup movement these days. Did the entrepreneurship historically exist in Taiwan? Well, in fact, Taiwan government always encouraged people to start their own business. Um, in 1960s and 70s, the government sent people to abroad to learn advanced technology from Western. And in 1980s, UMC and TSMC were born, and the new business model of foundry established. Then hundreds of IC design houses emerged. So startup culture in Taiwan isn't a sudden movement. So I think what you're seeing here is the reset of startup in Taiwan. What do you mean by reset? Why reset was necessary? Uh, in 1980s and 90s, the earlier startups in Taiwan are all small and medium companies, and their technology or products are 
more like me too business, and they made little money through low cost pricing. But I think the game has changed. Why do you say the game has changed? Could you explain why and how this、uh, game has changed? Uh, because the competition now is global, not in local market, and the PC and the mobile industry are slowing down, and Taiwan need to looking for new economic drivers. So the Ministry of Science and Technologies, I think you guys call it MOST, M O S T, selected recently ten innovative startups. What do you see as common threads among those ten companies?、Mm, according to the ministry, they use four criteria: they are technologicality, potential on the global market, industrial influence, and the startup team's potential of growth. And this year, the ten coolest startups cover AI, biotech. Healthcare and the wearable device, cloud service, energy management system. In my opinion, almost all of them are the kind of crossover companies. It means their technologies and solutions are combined by knowledge from different area, and their team includes the talents with different expertise. So Judith, how much help are these startups getting from the Taiwan government? Well, additional to the traditional approach of providing the tax and loan preferences, the government's new way to support the startups is building a high-tech startup-friendly ecosystem.、Mm. To encourage it, a program funded by Most aims to connect the global sources. Since the program start last year, plenty of public and private international partners come here. I mean Taipei, they including French and Canadian initiatives, international accelerators, and with more than a hundred staff teams. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, hundred, huh? And Taiwan hope to attract global and local talents. So, what are the prognosis, Judith? How successful do you think these startups will become? What are we still missing? I think、uh, the advantages of Taiwan is having a complete supply chain and、uh, agile, fast response, diligent nature of Taiwan is. I think this advantage will help, but it's not easy, or it could take a long time <laughs> to see a unicorn here. The size of domestic market is too small in Taiwan to raise a big enterprise, and the startup's vision and experience in the global market are not enough. Although the Me Too culture is out of date, I think most of the young generation or engineering community in Taiwan are used to stay in their comfort zone. They are not bored to try to adventure. How come, Judith? Why do you think that they wouldn't want to change? Well, the traditional concept from the generation of my parents, they always hope their children to work for a big company to get regular salaries. They think to have 
your own business is too risky. I see. <laughs> But actually, I feel the energy from those stops. You do because、okay. right now we have a supportive environment for stops, and、uh, build your own business is not so difficult as twenty years ago. And also, probably it's fashionable, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, becoming. it's true. <laughs> so I hope we can see some of them shining in the market in the near future. Very good. Thanks, Judith. Thank you. That was Judith Chen talking with Junko Yoshida, reporting from Taipei. And this has been your weekly briefing from EE Times. You can read all of these stories and more at eetimes.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>